Good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. My name is Mike, and I serve on the Student Life Team. Thank you for starting your week in worship with us. Sunday, February 27th is going to be special because we'll once again hear stories of life change from those who have responded to the gospel and are being baptized. So if you would like to be baptized on that Sunday, please register online at wheatonbible.org baptism for the baptism class, which takes place on February 7th. After you register, more information will be sent to you. If you're a lawyer or are trained to give legal advice, we have an exciting ministry opportunity for you to serve those in your church family and the surrounding community. We're looking for volunteers with your unique skill set to help us relaunch the Administer Justice Legal Clinic here at our West Chicago campus. Administer Justice has been providing legal advice virtually during the pandemic, but with your help, we can reopen our legal clinic in person one Saturday per month and give people the opportunity to sit down with you for a 45-minute session and get advice on their situation. To find out more about how you can get involved, please contact Joel Duncan, Director of Outreach at jduncan at wheatonbible.org, or you can visit wheatonbible.org slash administerjustice. Finally, two quick reminders. First, we would love to get you connected into a group. Whether that's in a Bible study, a Sunday morning adult community, a care group, or a life group, there are so many great options. Just scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you or check out wheatonbible.org groups. Second, we'll once again hold our annual business meeting next Sunday at 2.30 p.m. We'll celebrate all that God has done this past year and members will vote for new elders and the proposed ministry financial plan for 2022. Spanish translation will be available during the meeting and childcare will be provided for pre-K and younger. No pre-registration is needed. You can pick up an informational packet at the welcome desk in the atrium or feel free to check out wheatonbible.org slash annual meeting for more information and to request an absentee ballot if needed. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks again for joining us and we hope you have a blessed week. Good morning and welcome to Wheaton Bible Church. Wonderful to be together this morning. Special welcome to those of you joining us online. A special thank you to our operations team this morning as it always seems to storm on Saturday nights the last month or so. And um, our call to worship this morning begins with Psalm 36, which reads, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Let us indeed draw near to our God of steadfast love this morning. He most gloriously revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, who has open arms for us today. So let's stand and sing together.
amazing grace allows us to continually come to him for forgiveness, for restoration, for assurance of our greatest need, our love and our belonging, his love and our belonging to him as our father. First John chapter one says, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Lord, how foolish we would be to not admit our need for you and to not confess the ways that we fall short of your glory. We confess that we have not loved you with all that we are, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Forgive us. Lord, how we need your grace every hour. Lord, may your spirit guide us continually to come to you to find the grace and mercy that we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and let's read aloud together from Ephesians chapter 2 so that we are assured of our standing through our faith in Christ. Let's read out loud together. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen.
Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, in which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believe in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as the one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, 
but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. You may be seated. May the Lord add our blessing to the reading of his word. All right. Good morning, familia. So once again, I don't think we're going to have issues with social distancing today. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters as they try to navigate this uh, crazy weather. Don't you love winter? Mm, I love it. Not whatsoever. I've lived in this country for 30 years. Still don't like winter. Uh, if you were here last week, you probably remember that we celebrated Martin Luther again. You probably uh, remember that we celebrated Martin Luther King's Day last week. Um, because we believe uh, that what Martin Luther King stood for, we should as Christians stand for. Because one of the things he argued for was based on what Genesis says, that all, the, all human beings have been created in the image of God. Therefore, all human beings from the womb to the tomb have value and dignity and ought to be acknowledged, respected, honored, and protected. That's clear in the scripture. And that's why today as a nation, at least in some parts of the nation, we also celebrate the sanctity of human life. And this is the reason why we also as a church believe that we should celebrate that as well or remember that celebration once again because we believe that all human beings have been created in the image of God from the wound all the way to the tomb. Every human being, even those human beings in the womb, carry with them, within themselves the beauty of the image of God. Today then as a church, we want to stand for the unborn. We stand against the practice of abortion and we pray that God intervenes, protects, and protects the vulnerable and changes the narrative of our culture. Well, at the same time, it's important that we remember that as a church, we stand for women, and we stand for expectant mothers and parents, families dealing with unplanned pregnancies, and not knowing where else to turn. As a church, we long and we pray that God helps us to be a place in which the weary, the restless, the one that mourns, the one that has uh, failed and needs comfort, the one that seeks peace and needs strength, um, may our church be a place in which we can proclaim Jesus, the one that is friend of sinners. Today as a church, we, wanna, we want to declare that if, if that happens to be your case, we want to love you, we want to walk with you, we want to serve you, we want to help you, and we want to point you to the one that could bring you peace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have uh, given us this amazing image, Lord, of what it means to be a human being. Not just someone that has abilities and capacities and all these things, Lord, but someone that has been and people have been created in your image. Therefore, everyone is beautiful just because of that. Everyone is honored, is ought to be honored and acknowledged, respected, and protected. And I pray, Lord, that as we celebrate sanctity of human life today, we pray for our nation. We pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you change the narrative, Lord. We pray for those mothers or parents or families that are, are dealing with this, Lord. We pray for your presence, your power, your grace, your love, and your peace. And I pray for us 
that you allow us to be a church that really cares for the afflicted, that it speaks on behalf of the vulnerable, but that is people full of grace and full of love and full of mercy, knowing that at the end of the day, we are all sinners in need of grace. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you allow us to be a church that magnifies uh, your beauty, your power, and your mercy. Lord, I also understand that in our midst, in our congregation this morning, you know, people worshiping with us online, there's some of us that are struggling through different things. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you may be present, that you may be peace, that you may bring joy, that you, uh, Lord, bring restoration, whatever the case may be. We want to pray today for the, uh, for the preaching of your word. We want to preach for our congregations. We want to preach for our services. Lord, please speak to us. Speak to us in, here in the traditional service. Preach to us. Speak to us, Lord, in the contemporary and Spanish-speaking service. Please bless TVC as they proclaim the gospel this morning. Please bless your church as they proclaim the gospel this morning. Lord, we need you. We need to be transformed by your power and your grace. Please speak to us by the power of your spirit. May the spirit illuminate our minds, transform our affections, and influence our will. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says? All right, how is everyone doing? Yeah, weather is not helping, right? But we're here. So I want to welcome you all, those of you that are here, that, that were able to get, make it here. I want to uh, welcome all of you guys that are worshiping with us online. I want to welcome all of you that maybe you're visiting for the first time. As always, I want to say that we are a congregation that wants to love you and serve you in any way we can. So please let us know. Now, I think that this is a great season for us as a church, not just because the Lord is always moving and doing always amazing things in our midst, but I think that it's a great season because we're going through this series that we have called Gospel Culture, in which we're looking into 12 different biblical traits, you could call it beliefs and practices, that helps us explain who we want to be as a church, partly who we are as a church, and two, who we want to become as a church. So the way I've been framing this is that uh, it's important to pay attention to, do, to these 12 biblical traits because it gives us three things. Number one, it tells you what the church ought to be. Number two, it is a blueprint of what, the, of what we as Christians need to experience a spiritual renewal or to grow in a spiritual renewal. And number three, these are the tools necessary that all Christians need to have to remain faithful and fruitful in the midst of an increasing secular world. It gives us an idea of what the church ought to be. It's a blueprint for spiritual renewal, and it helps us become faithful or remain faithful and fruitful in the midst of this changing, crazy world. So last week we talked about the most foundational belief, in my opinion, the one that we cannot do without, which is the supremacy of the Scripture. And what I talked about for about, I don't know, 45 minutes or something, even though the thing said 35, but I know that I went longer, um, is, is that a church without the supremacy of the Scripture cannot be called a church. It could be called a club. It could be called a gathering. It could be a, a group of friends. But it's not a church. A church, on the other hand, is a church that believes and keeps the Bible, that believes the Bible and keeps the Bible in the center of everything. 
meaning that we preach it, we teach it, we let the Bible guide us, and we let the Bible inform us, even as we make decisions about what to do and what about what not to do. So the question that I have for you today is this. What happens when you make the Bible the center of your life? And I want to argue that when you make the center, you make the Bible the center of your, la- of your life, you automatically must become gospel-centered people. The, my whole argument this morning is that if we truly believe that the Bible is supreme, that is authority, that is supposed to dictate everything, that is about God's word, and we want to be people of the word, gospel centrality is not an option. My job this morning is to try to convince you that that is right. And this is part of the reason why we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 1 through 11. And these are the three questions that I'm trying to answer this morning. Why is the gospel central? Why do we need it, and how do we make it personal? Why is the gospel central? Why do we need it, and how do we make it personal? I need you to do me a favor just because, you know, to break the awkwardness of a lot of people not here. Can you please look at the person next to you and say, do you, do you, believe, the, do you believe in gospel centrality? Go ahead, go ahead. Now, please, feel free to say, no, I don't, right? Um, or you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with it, right? Or feel free to say, yeah, I, I already believe this, and, and then you're in a good place, all right? So let's talk about the first one. Why is the gospel central? Now, if you have been um, part of a church for a while, you know that this concept of gospel centrality is actually not new to us. This is something that we have been talking about, preaching about, teaching about uh, for the last, I would say, 10 years or so. This is one of the reasons why a few years ago, uh, we put this as one of our values. We say that the gospel isn't just the starting line, but that it is the whole race. The gospel changes everything, our heart motivations, relationships, work, and the fruit of our service in the world. The gospel is the good news that God is making everything wrong in us and in the world right through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to read more about that, you could always go to our website, go under values, and you're going to find uh, an even more extended explanation. Now, as I mentioned before, my job today, my intention today, is that if, if you are a Christian, I want to remind you that the gospel is not something that you just needed at the beginning, but that you need every day. If you are someone that is new to the church, I want to convince you that this is one of the things that makes this church, quote-unquote, unique. We are a gospel-centered church. And maybe if you are exploring Christianity, my job today is to help you see why is it that Christians talk about the gospel so much. So the question remains, why is the gospel central? Now, to help you understand the text, i got to give you a little bit of context. So the writer of the book of Corinthians, uh, uh, to the Corinthians was Paul. Now, Paul is a really interesting person because he persecuted the church. He hated Christianity. Um, And Paul is writing this letter trying to fix certain things that are happening in that church at that time. Now, what is amazing about this church, Corinth, is that it's both an amazing, beautiful church and at the same time, super complicated. Uh, On one end, this is a church that has all kinds of good stuff. They're uh, super talented. 
uh, they are full of gifts of the Spirit, they're influential, they're professionals, they're effective. There's all kinds of great stuff about this church. But at the same time, they have a ton of issues. They argue about everything. There is division in the church. They argue about leadership. They struggle with sexual immorality. They are suing one another. There are problems of idolatry. They have issues with marriage. They uh, have issues about communion. They have issues about spiritual gifts. They do not know how to love one another. Now, everything that I just mentioned is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 14. So listen, if you are here and this is your home church, or if you're worshiping with us online and this is your home church, if you struggle with this church, if you think that sometimes we don't do things right, if maybe every now and then you complain about the church, this is my recommendation to you. Read First and Second Corinthians from the beginning to the end, and I guarantee you that by the time you finish, you're going to feel so good about this church. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? When we feel that something is wrong with us, we start looking at someone that is worse than us, and then we feel better. That's what I'm inviting you to do. This is a church that struggles so and so much. Once again, everything that I just mentioned is chapters 1 through 14 from the first letter. I'm not even mentioning the second letter. What is interesting, though, is that Paul does something weird, if you will. Because he's trying to correct all these things from chapters 1 through 14. And on chapter 15, it seems like if he's changing the subject. So he's trying to correct all these different ideologies, false ideologies, and all these issues that they have within the congregation. And then when he, when he gets to chapter 15, it seems like if he's changing the conversation. And he starts talking about the gospel. So, for example, in verse 1. It says, now, brothers and sisters, notice that he's writing to Christians. He's writing to church people. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you prior, which you received, that means that you believed it, in which you have taken your stand, meaning that you are grounded on it. So for 14 chapters, he's talking about everything that they do wrong, trying to fix that. And when he gets to chapter 15, he, are, he is reminding Christians, not non-Christians, Christians about the gospel that they heard, that they received, in which they stand. The question is, why would Paul do that? It's a weird approach, right? If the gospel is what you need when you first get converted as a Christian, why is Paul bringing the gospel after all these issues? And I think that this is what Paul is arguing. Paul is arguing that the reason why they are struggling with all the stuff they're struggling with is because they stop having the gospel in the center of everything. My argument is that the reason why Paul writes about the gospel right at the end after he addresses all those issues is because they have forgotten the power of the gospel, the necessity of the gospel. I think that happens a lot in church circles, you know? I actually think that that happens a lot to many of us. 
See, for many of us, we were so amazed when we first became Christians, when we heard and believed the gospel. And our hearts were full of joy, and we wanted to share it with everybody. And we were, this is a, kind of the joy of salvation. But as time goes by, and the more, quote-unquote, Christian you become, you start to assume the gospel. You start to believe that the gospel was good, but now I need something else. That the gospel was powerful, but now I need to grow in other, quote-unquote, more important things. More, quote-unquote, spiritual things. More, quote-unquote, religious activities. The problem when you start assuming the gospel like that is that eventually you forget the gospel. And Paul says, in my opinion, that that's exactly what happened in this church. They're fighting about leadership, division, communion, spiritual gifts, all these things, because they have forgotten the gospel. I think that he makes the point even more clear in verse 2. Look at what he says. By this gospel, you are saved. Notice that he doesn't say, you were saved. Present tense. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And this is Paul's way of saying it is because you stop believing the gospel the way you're supposed to. That you started to do this unintentional thing, I believe, in which is gospel plus something else. It's gospel plus being a good person. It's gospel plus behaving good. It is gospel plus doing something else, something good. The problem, though, is that people start treating the gospel, believing the gospel as if it is just as important to everything else. It's adding to the gospel something else. You know the problem is when everything you do as Christians, everything you believe as Christians is just as important, that when everything is important, nothing is important. Let's say that you put, for those of you that are parents, you put a plate of food in front of your kid. And you say you got your protein and your vegetables and you got whatever in, in the plate. And you say, you guys got you to eat everything because everything in that plate is important, which might be true. But depending on where your kid is, there's something in that plate that is more important than everything else. And I think that in Christianity, we have done that with the gospel. We have forgotten that there's nothing more important than to know who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. This is why Paul says this at the beginning of verse 3. For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Can you say first importance? Nothing more important. This was the beginning of everything. This was the foundation of everything. This is the thing that you cannot afford to forget. The most important thing. The most basic thing. Let me use this illustration. If, if you like sports, how many of you guys like sports? Okay, how many of you guys don't like sports? That's okay. That's all right. God forgives you. But here, this is the thing. If you like sports, if you know anything about sports, you know that the best teams are not the ones that are trying to do crazy new things. You know what the best teams are? The ones that are experts in the most basic things. 
You know, as a soccer, I played soccer my entire life. I played soccer a couple of years in college, and then I quit because I couldn't do those two at the same. I couldn't study and do sports at the same time. My, it just didn't work. Um, but I remember at one time, uh, as a typical uh, Latino that plays soccer, in Latin America, if you, if you know anything about soccer, in Latin America, we don't care so much about being practical and straight to the point. That's a Euro European way to play soccer. You know how Europeans play? Three, three passes. Here, 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 go. That's it. Latin people, because we got all this flavor, we, we like to adorn the game. So we do tricks left and right, and we go forward and we go back, and we move the ball, and we do all kinds of stuff while we're praying. So it's pleasing to see it. When I was playing in college, I brought my game, and the coach told me, you got to stop that. <laughs> because even though that's fancy and cute, that's not what I need you to do. Get the basics down. Run with the ball and score. And you know what? That's why he quit. <laughs> but he was right. I had to stick to the basics. And as Christians, the basics is the gospel. It's not just something that you heard at the beginning of your spiritual journey. It's something that you can never forget. It's something that you need to keep in front of you all the time. You know why? Because the tendency of the human heart is to forget what is of first importance. First importance! Remind you that Paul is talking to Christians. Remind you that Paul is talking to, let's say, spiritual mature people. And because he knows that these people not only has forgotten the gospel, he's going to remind them what the gospel is. You know what happens when you forget the gospel? You start adding to it. And Paul is going to make sure that they don't add anything to it. So in verses 3 and 4, he gives us four words, four key words. He says that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas and then another 500 people. And I'm not going to spend time on that one because that's not what I want to focus on this morning. Four words, died, buried, raised, and appeared. And if you notice, those four words actually is two, two uh, uh, they pair one another. So he, the, Paul says that Jesus died and, and was raised. And Paul says that Jesus was buried and he appeared. And in these sentences, in these three verses, he gives us the shortest definition of what the gospel is. Listen, if you're not a Christian yet, I want to explain to you we're going to dig into these verses just to explain to you what the gospel is. And if you are a Christian, I want to remind you of what the gospel is. Something that you cannot, something that you must continue to believe. Something that you cannot walk away from. Something that you cannot leave behind. Something that you could never forget. And something that you need to keep in front of you at all times. Why? Because the gospel changes everything. Now, I'm going to read, to, I'm going to read directly uh, that I wrote because I don't want to miss anything of what I'm going to say. And this is my best effort to explain to you what Paul is saying in those four words. Listen up. Paul says in four words 
that we were so sinful, so broken, so needed that Jesus had to die for us. Pay attention to the word for. He had to die in our place, substitution. And there had to be, um, and he had to take upon himself the consequence of our sin. Because it was, it was either going to be him or us. And it had to be him because nobody else could take the place of a sinner except a sinless person taking the place of a sinful person. And Jesus had to die for us because every sin we have committed in thought, motivation, word, and action was against a holy, good, perfect God. And because God is a holy God, he could not just look away. He couldn't just forgive us because he would be going against his own moral law. He had already said that whoever commits a sin must die. So what does God do in Jesus Christ? He takes upon himself the consequence of our sin. Because we wanted to put ourselves in the place of God, this God puts himself in our place, the great exchange. And since Jesus takes our place in the cross, if we believe and repent, we are forgiven. All of our sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins are, uh, are already forgiven. We are no longer defined by what we have done. But, or by what we do, or what, what we could do, we are forgiven in what Jesus did for us, past, present, and future. And not only he dies, Paul says, but he also resurrected. And in that resurrection, he guarantees that everything Jesus said about himself had to be true. He said that he would die and resurrect. And he did. Therefore, there is no reason why we should ever doubt that not only he was God, but that what he says, that when he says that we are forgiven, we are forgiven. And the resurrection also guarantees that in Jesus we have been justified, declared righteous before the Father. Meaning that in Jesus we are given a new identity and a new record. And that when God sees us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he sees us as perfect. He loves us just as much as he loves his son. In Jesus, we are forgiven, accepted, redeemed, rescued, liberated, adopted, loved, and eternally secure. This is the reason why we must believe this. This is the reason why we must continue to believe this. We never walk away from this, never leave it behind, never forget it, always keep it in front of us. The reason we can never afford to do that. It's because no other religion in the world offers that. All religions in the world teach you that you must do something to earn your salvation. All religions in the world tell you that you must do something, but only Christianity offers you what God has already done and what God already did. Christianity is the only system of beliefs in which our God not only desires our salvation, but accomplishes our salvation. This is why the gospel is not good advice. This is why the gospel is good news. It is a declaration of victory. Sin has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. Condemnation has been eradicated. And now we have a place in our Father's house because Jesus died, was buried, raised, and appeared again. Can you see? Can you see what we can do without the gospel? Can you see why this is so central? I, I, you can't survive without the gospel. But there's more. As good as it is, part of the reason why the gospel must be central is not because everything that Paul says from verses 3 to 5. But because of what he says in the, midst, in the middle of those sentences. Look at what he says again. 
He says that this is he's passing on to Christians the message that he already received. And in two different occasions, he says that everything he's proclaiming is according to the scriptures. Jesus died according to the scriptures, and Jesus resurrected according to the scriptures. You know why that's so important? Because it affects the way we view the Bible and we read the Bible. It tells you that in the Bible, the core message is the redemption story. That Jesus, who he is as a person and what he came to accomplish, is in the center of the Bible. That the Bible is much more than just giving us moral rules on how to live. That the Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. Listen up, church. We are a Bible church. Amen? You know what happens sometimes with Bible churches? We read the Bible as a manual on how to live. Anything wrong with that? No. But the Bible is not about that. The Bible is not about you. And it's not about me. It's about Jesus and what he came to accomplish. I don't know if you ever thought of this. Let's just speak something like the Ten Commandments. And let's say that you're really good at the Ten Commandments, which I doubt it. But let's say that you're really good about the Ten Commandments. You know what that turns you into? An arrogant person. You know why? Because you start to look at the other people that don't know how to follow the Ten Commandments and you feel superior to them. Or... Think about the Ten Commandments from a different perspective. If you really pay attention to everything that the Lord is asking you to do and not to do, if you really read the Ten Commandments, at the end of the day, you will feel overwhelmed and full of guilt and full of shame. But the gospel tells you that he forgives those that are guilty and he keeps humble those that think that they got it done. And when you read the entire Bible, you must learn to read it like that. All right, so I'm going to read another long section. Today is the day of reading long sections. I'm borrowing this from J.D. Greer. He, he did a sermon. Uh, he wrote it later on about um, how to find Jesus in the entire Bible. And I'm just going to give you a fragment of it because, I mean, we, if not, we're going to be here all day long. But this is what he says. When we read the Bible, we must learn to find Jesus in images and symbolism or, or characters or things like that. This is the way he said. In Genesis, Jesus was the word of God, creating the heavens and the earth. And the Bible says that that is true. In Exodus, he was the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he was the temple and the holy place. In the book of Numbers, he was the pillar of cloud um, by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he was the prophet coming as the greater Moses. In Joshua, he was the conquering warrior leading into the promised land. In Judges, he was the broken, saving, raising up, to, uh, raising up to, to rescue his people. In Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he was the pure-hearted shepherd king who faces all giants by himself. In First and Second Kings, he was the righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, he was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he is the advocate, risking his life to restore you to royalty. In Job, he is the living redeemer. In the book of Psalms, he is the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, he is the, the meaning that helps you escape madness. In the Song of Solomon, he is your lover and your bridegroom. 
in Isaiah. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, he's the spirit that writes God's laws in our hearts. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the river of life bringing healing to the nation. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he is the ever-faithful husband pursuing an unfaithful bride. In Joel, he is the restorer. That's only a fragment of the Old Testament. Now let's look into the New Testament because I think it's even more beautiful. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the son of God. In Luke, he is the savior born to us in the city of David. In John, he is the word becoming flesh dwelling among us. In Acts, he is the Christ, the recent Lord proclaiming salvation to the nations. In Romans, he is the justifier. In First and Second Corinthians, he is the spirit at work in the church. In Galatians, he is the righteousness imputed to us by faith. In Ephesians, he is the righteous armor. In Philippians, God meets our every need. In Colossians, the, he is the firstborn of all creation. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he is descending from heaven to meet us together in the clouds. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, he is the mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is the faithful pastor. In Philemon, he is the redeemer, restoring us to service. In Hebrews, he is the great high priest. Now let me skip some and go to Revelations. In Revelations, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Lamb is slain before the foundation of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's an amazing way to read the Bible. That's why it has to be, the gospel must be centered. That's why Christianity must have the gospel in the center of everything we do. And that's why if you are a believer, you need that just as much as when you first started your relationship with Jesus. Now, if you're not convinced of that, and this is going to go quick, let me give you some reasons why, very practical reasons, why you need the gospel. Very practical. So I already made the case that you don't need the gospel just when you become a Christian, but that you need your gospel forever. And I want to argue, based on these two phrases, I'm going to give you some practical applications based on these two phrases, that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised. I'm going to choose every single one of those to actually make applications. So, for example, the word for there, as explained before, has to do with the substitution of Jesus Christ, taking our place and taking our punishment. That for reminds us that the only way we are forgiven is when we repent and we believe. That's it. We believe and we repent and we become Christians. But there's more than that because if that is true, listen up, church, this affects the way you deal with your sin and the way you deal with your guilt. So let's say that you have committed a sin, whatever that may be, and you feel guilty. And if you're not careful, that sin starts to define you. And then you see yourself not as a son of God forgiven in Jesus Christ, but as a sinner, and your sin starts to define you. And if you're like just any other human being in the world, then you start to feel that you need to make things right with God. So what do we do? We try to get better, and we try to be better, and we try harder. You know what the problem is? That it doesn't matter how much you try, how much you pursue, deep down inside, you always know that it's not enough. You can never make it right. You know why? Because every sin is against a holy God. Therefore, every sin has cosmic implications. 
How do you fix that? When you start to preach the gospel to yourself. And you remember that in Jesus you have truly be, uh, have been forgiven. And that, listen up church, you don't have to make things right with God. Jesus already did that. Therefore, I want to repent, not to earn God, but because I have God. It's almost like having, uh, someone put it this way, like a, like, a, um, like a receipt that says paid in full. See, every time you feel that you got to pay for your own sins, you got to get that receipt out and say paid in full. That's what the gospel does. Actually, I want to argue that the more you believe that, the quicker you are to repent. You know why? Because it is an act of adoration. It is an act of gratitude. You don't want anything that will hinder, in a sense, your relationship with God. Not to earn them, but because we have them. Pay attention to the second phrase. Our sins. Notice that Paul doesn't say, your sins. He says, our sins. You want a practical application there? It is only when you remember that everyone in this room and everything, everyone worshiping with us online, we are all on the same boat. We were all depraved people, spiritually depraved people. We were all sinners and that Jesus saved us by grace and grace alone. You know why that's important? No one should feel spiritually superior to no one else. Because Jesus died for our sins. Not just my sins and not just your sins. Our sins. The Christian should never say, I'm so glad that I don't have that sin. Because when you pay attention... You have others that are just as bad. Pay attention to the word raised. And in this one, I'm going to give you three, three applications. When Paul talks about Jesus being resurrected in other places, he would argue that this is why Christians are justified. We have a new identity and a new record. We have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. If that is true, then that also affects the way you deal with your sin. Another application. See, when you want to fight against your sin, you're not just saying, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to read more, I'm going to pray more. you got to do all of that. Please do. But your strength doesn't come from the things you do. Your strength comes from your new nature. You remember St. Augustine? He was a man that struggled with sexual immorality. He gets the gospel, he gets converted. And as he's walking down the street, one of the ladies that he used to play around with says, Hey, Augustine is I. And he turns around and says, Yeah, but that is not me anymore. That's your new identity. When I struggle with my sin, I must preach the gospel to myself and say, This is not me anymore. Let me give you another application. No, don't need to justify yourself. Don't need to try to earn approval by anybody. Don't need to prove anything to anybody because you have already been approved by God in Jesus Christ. 
Not only that gives me freedom to be who I am, but it frees me from the fear of men. You have no idea how much this concept, this concept alone has transformed my life. I still struggle with it sometimes, but you have no idea what it means to preach to a congregation in which you are thinking, what do they think of me? That's not freedom. That is the, free of, uh, that is the fear of men. You know what freedom is? I know that when I'm preaching the Bible, I am come through the, I'm preaching through the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been already approved. My job is to be faithful, whatever you think of me. It's nice, but if you don't think, well, it's all right. My God has already approved me. Can you see why is it that we cannot live without the gospel? Is that true for you? This is why as a church, we must be, we must continue to believe in the centrality of the gospel. Not just because the Bible shows it to you, but because we can live without it. Now, some people might say, well, that's a hand. well, I don't think that that's the case. I think that when you talk about the gospel so much, and you preach the gospel so much, and you read about the gospel so much, that gives you license to sin. I've heard that one, you have heard that one. You know what's interesting? The person that is talking about this is the same person that says that that is not true. In verse 10, it says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You know what he says? He's comparing himself to the disciples. And he shows both confidence, confidence and humbleness. He says, I have worked harder than all of them together. And yet, it was not me. It was the grace of God in me or with me. Did you know that this is the reason why Paul calls the gospel the gospel of grace? So listen up, church. You want to be a better husband? You want to be a better wife? You want to be a better son, a better daughter, a better brother or sister, a better friend? If you want to be a better worker, leader, you want to be more generous, more faithful, if you want to have a better marriage, if you want to glorify God more, if you want to die to yourself more and grow in what the Lord is calling you to be more, you must embrace the gospel. You need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it is also the power of God for transformation. Amen? How do we put this, how do we make this personal? Simple. Learn to preach it to yourself. Every day. Every day. When you struggle, you ask the question, what is it that I'm trying to gain that I don't have in Jesus already? What is it that I'm trying to defend that I don't have in Jesus already? What is it that I'm trying to prove that I don't have in Jesus already? What is it that I need besides Jesus? Let me finish with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous uh, British preacher, uh, wrote a ton of stuff and helped and preached, I don't know how many sermons, very successful preacher. 
And when he got old, um, I think in his 80s, um, uh, he couldn't preach anymore. He got super sick, so no more ministry. And he was just at home doing his life. And someone came to do an interview to him and said, how do you, how do you deal with this? How do you feel about just being, and they use this phrase, a preacher in a bookshelf? And he looked at him and said, why would that bother me? I know who I am in Jesus. You need that, I need that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful because we have nothing to prove. We are grateful, Lord, that we have been loved and accepted because our Lord Jesus lived, died, and resurrected. We are grateful, Lord, for the beautiful good news of the gospel in which there is a declaration, Lord, that everything that needed to get done was already done. Salvation has been accomplished. The receipt says paid in full. Lord, I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you make of us people of the gospel more and more. Not only that you make of us people of the word, but people of the word that believes the gospel more than anything else because it is of first importance. Would you do that to us? Would you do that in us? And would you do that through us? And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say? Seeing uh, right here is has been extremely helpful for me in pushing the gospel further and further deeply into my heart. And so that's our prayer for you today. It's a prayer of praise, thanking God for being the God of our salvation and then giving him glory. So enjoy and may it, may it go deep into your heart and be uh, truly meaningful to you. of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea and I am safe on the solid ground the Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls
our salvation that we must keep him and what he did for us in front of us at all times now before we finish the service i want to remind you of three things number one i want to remind you that every tuesday we gather as a staff and pray for you so if you have prayer for prayers for us please let us know we love to pray for you because we believe in the power of prayer we believe in the god of restoration we believe in the god that redeems and therefore we pray to him Trusting that he will do something. So if you have prayers for us, you can use the QR code in front of you, put your prayer, and I guarantee you that someone is going to be praying for you. Number two, I want to invite you to continue to support the church financially. Uh, I want to invite you to continue uh, to trust what the Lord is doing here. Um, and if you, if you are wondering why is it that I'm asking you to give, it's because we have a generous God that has given us all in Jesus Christ. What is the motivation to give? The gospel. Amen. And I'm going to ask you to please stand to receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us at the cross. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. And the church says, thanks for coming. We love you. Have a blessed day.